Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Antiques Podcast? You know it. What antiques are we talking about this week? Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately and wanted to share with you all. I wanted to talk about staple repairs. <gasps> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited that you're excited. I'm so excited for staple repairs. They look so cool. They are extremely cool. Oh my god, please tell us all about staple repairs. So, you might be wondering, what am staple repair? D, what am staple repair? <laughs> They're also referred to as rivet repairs because of the way that they sometimes appear from the front of the piece. In a time uh, long before widely available and useful effective adhesives, and in a time where that also meant that being able to own pottery or stoneware or china or porcelain, whether decorative or utilitarian, was very important and not easily replaced, you had to fix things, right? You did. And staple repairs were, for an extremely long time, the answer to that. Staple repairs are actually dated back to ancient Greece in some areas. Whoa, what? Yeah. <laughs> You'll see a lot of people reach back to the 1600s and say that that was kind of when it flourished, but this has been a method of repair for a very long time, possibly even longer in China. You'll see a lot of people reach around to the 1600s. You see, you see every day. Have you given the 1600s a reach around? Reconsider. <laughs> so yeah, that is a little bit of like European lens, however. Because another thing that we're going to introduce to you here and talk a little bit about more lately is that people thought the art of staple repair was extinct. Wait, are you telling me it's not? It is not. Oh, hell yes. Hell yes, hell yes, hell yes. <laughs> staple repair resurrection. I think it's coming in and we should all be excited. But first, uh, I didn't actually explain what a staple repair was. So let me try to explain. A staple repair could be used for either a piece that was broken apart, so something uh, very commonly what you'll see with these actually is plates that were obviously broken straight down and uh, like broken in half, basically. Broken in half! Mankind threw it off of the top buckle and through the announcer's table. Has mankind ever successfully thrown anyone? I just realized that I got that backwards because <laughs> it was Undertaker throwing mankind. I was going to say, I don't know if I've ever seen mankind successfully <laughs> toss another anyone. human being across the ring, but I've definitely seen mankind get thrown about like his very own sock puppet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so sorry to all the wrestling fans that I got that reference mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you see a lot of like what I'm going to call functional breaks, which is just the kind of damage you expect when you're moving plates around or using them in a day-to-day -day life. Dropping them, even. Dropping them. Some might say. Dropping plates. But it could also be used to reinforce really bad-looking cracks. Cracks that would quickly become breakages if not dealt with. Although that is less common. For our examples in your imagination, we're going to imagine a plate cracked neatly, cleanly down the middle. You would take both sides of the plate. You would wrap it very tightly entwined to hold it together. You would take a small drill... And at however many points you thought necessary, depending on the kind of breakage, for a clean break like that, you would use fewer. You would drill on both sides of the breakage a small hole. You would take a piece of metal in a generally staple shape, and you would fit it into the hole that you had drilled. So getting the hole sized as close as possible to perfect for the piece of metal was really important. And then you would take a very small jeweler's hammer and tap, 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 tap the staple into the other hole on the other side with a staple-like appearance. And depending on how good you were at drilling and tapping it in, a very nice tight hold. Adding to the amount of skill that this took, generally you would drill the hole halfway through the plate. 
Now, if you need to get up and grab a plate and just sort of like pinch it between your thumb and forefinger to remind yourself of how very little material that is to drill through, feel free because it might be a fun exercise. And also remember how by nature it is pretty brittle and inclined to crack further under pressure, such as might be applied by a drill. Exactly. And is already under pressure to hold it together to be drilled. And also consider what you are using for a drill at this time. Because <laughs> the speed and power of modern drills would make this very simple. It becomes much, much harder when the drills are moving slowly. Oh, yeah. Because that'll put a lot more pressure. For a lot longer. So I really want to hammer home how much of a learned skill this is. Not drill home, D. Oh, damn it, that would have been better. <laughs> steal your thunder and we gotta start over <laughs> start the whole episode over so staple repairs staple repairs like i said those are usually how it's done of course if someone didn't have that skill a lot of this was home repairs too by the way so this would be kind of a known secret it was something you could do yourself just given with a couple of tools some people drill all the way through and then kind of hammer the end of the staple from the front flat enough so you can see rivets on the front and the back it's less aesthetically pleasing, but especially when you're looking at items that have a utilitarian use, it works. And if you get it nice and tight enough, you could even have a pot that used to carry water, watertight all over again. Damn. Yeah. And while there were some people who claimed to be quote unquote China menders, generally this is considered like a make-do repair. Like I said, it wouldn't be uncommon for it to be done as a home repair, or you might hand it off to literally anyone you could think of who had metal available. Jewelers, blacksmiths. And oftentimes there were itinerant repairers who would wander around who just kind of had a variety of fixing skills. They would be able to, you know, patch leather, fix wood, and staple your plates back together. And of course, obviously, all of these different jobs would come with a different, like, you would expect a jeweler to have maybe a bit more of a fine hand at this kind of repair than the guy who walks around repairing things for money. And that's why you see a range of skill levels when you're looking at these. Some of them are very clearly, like, artisanally applied. And some of them were literally just bare minimum to keep this thing together, because quite frankly, replacing anything was expensive, especially a fine piece of porcelain. Because that's another fun thing about them. You actually tend to see them more on decorative pieces than useful pieces. That is probably because the useful pieces eventually broke down after use. But it also says a lot about the fondness people had for these specific decorative pieces. In my travels, I remember very specifically seeing like a piece of French porcelain that had a bunch of bugs and birds painted all over it. Absolutely gorgeous. Easily one of the prettiest plates I'd seen in my life and had roughly 27 staples in it holding four parts together. <laughs> and looking at it, it was pretty easy to see why. It was probably extremely expensive. It might have actually been partially custom work. No reason to throw that out, right? Right. Like you want to keep it. It is a part of your dish set. And God help you, you're going to eat your fucking bread off of it. Hell yeah. For me, one of the best things is seeing a piece that was repaired that way and either imagining or understanding the immediate importance it had to people. Yeah. Because like, I hope I've already imparted to you that this is not an easy process. Absolutely not. The staples could also be reinforced with a rudimentary kind of glue called mucilage, the worst word on God's green fucking earth. <laughs> I've seen mucilage described as a glue made from plants and a glue made from animal parts. I think it's just any organic glue. Does that make Elmer's technically mucilage? Well, yes. Mucilage was just the word for glue before they came up with the word glue. <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
nowadays you use mucilage to describe kind of like a handcrafted nature glue. And this is really easy to see where it's been used because aging has almost unilaterally turned all of these glues into an extremely unpleasant mustard color. Because of the aforementioned organic beginnings. Yeah. And I bet if any of you all listening are into like porcelains, stoneware, like China, you know exactly what glue color I'm talking about (laughs) and you have seen it before. It is the worst color on earth. I hate it. Wow. Rude. It's gross. It's a terrible color. But it's on such beautiful things. That's true. Other fill-in materials would include plaster, or in the case of metalsmiths and jewelers, a liquid metal of some kind, lead or tin generally. Hopefully tin. Ideally tin. Knowing how things be due in the 1600s, I'm not going to go ahead and say that they didn't use lead. It's just so soft and pliable and so easy to work with. (laughs) It's perfect. Looks nice. There are no downsides. But yeah, actually, uh, around the 18th century, you do see advertisements for people calling themselves either tinkerers or china menders. They tended to have very specialized tools, which would be a drill, usually either a dentist's or a jeweler's drill, which the former fills me with horror, diamond sparks to tip the drill. This actually seems to be very important in terms of doing a staple repair. The use of diamond on drills is not new by any means, and diamonds being what they are make it easier and more smooth to drill holes in things with limited pressure, which would cause further cracking and damage. Metal files for oftentimes if the staple was sticking out, you could file it down to so that it was more or less flush with the china. A pair of pliers for bending one half of the staple into the rest of the hole. A hammer, usually a tinkerer's hammer, jeweler's hammer, that kind of thing. Wire, that's generally what the staples were made out of was varying grades of wire. Oh, you know... Perhaps this is my stupid millennial brain talking, but it never occurred to me to think about how staples were manufactured before they came in, like, sleeves of glued-together things you slot into a stapler. (laughs) Honestly, I hadn't thought of it until I developed a fascination with this exact kind of repair. (laughs) So you're learning it the exact same way I did. (laughs) Like, whoa! Guys! Yeah! As an extremely online millennial, uh, one of my questions when I found out about this was, where did they get staples? (laughs) The reason that staples are shaped that way is because that's a very good way to hold things. The more you know. And that does explain why when you look at staple repairs, there's such a huge variation in what they look like. Some of them are really thick and look more like sheets of metal than a wire. And uh, sometimes with really robust pieces or really robust breakage for that matter, you'll actually see three in a row. It's just kind of like making their own like reinforced staple. And as previously mentioned, their kit might include solder, plaster, and cement. These kits actually do exist on the market very, very rarely. Oh my god, really? Yeah. That sounds so fun! There was like a fun story about an antiques dealer who had found a kit like that, who couldn't figure out what on earth it was for, who had kind of thought it might have been an old dentist's kit, except that it didn't really have enough in it, who also later found printed in an article in Pottery Gazette of 1908, an article on how to rivet glass china and earthenware, where they showed the tools that were very close to identical to the one he had found. The concept of invisible porcelain repair, which is probably what most people think about when they consider wanting porcelain repaired, wouldn't be introduced until the mid-1800s. And even then, the adhesives were still not great. It required near-perfect breakage to work. If it didn't fit together like a puzzle piece, it was not happening and required an extremely skilled hand to not only put the pieces together, but also to paint and mask the repair markings. 
Because what people don't talk about is that invisible porcelain repair always, always, always generally involves painting to cover up the repair markings. I had no idea. Yeah, it's um, it's easy to not know that. <laughs> because it's invisible? Because it's invisible. <laughs> it's a captivating process. It's a very, very long process. One of the really, really cool things that I have found out about staple repair and repairing like pottery in general is that it takes at least five skills at once to do it well. You have to be mechanically inclined, porcelain inclined, good at painting, excellent at color matching, decent with tools, have an eye for detail, steady hands, like there's a lot that goes into it. And as you might imagine, doing that kind of invisible repair, even when it was available in the 1800s, was not popular. You needed to be extremely rich and very lucky for that to work out in your favor. So no one's 100% sure when it tapered off exactly. Uh, the 1920s are usually cited because you start seeing industrial glues and solvents coming around. Simultaneously, you kind of stop seeing people riveting and stapling glass and china and earthenware. Which, by the way, you can do this to clear glass and I have seen it and it's <gasps> as cool as you think. Holy shit, really? Yeah. Oh my god. It was almost always like paired with glue because glass is a bit of a different beast than porcelain and doesn't always fit together quite as cleanly. I've also never seen a repairer, a person who does glass repairs, take out the staples when fixing a staple repaired piece of glass. I watched a whole like video on someone who was repairing, because it was ugly because it was covered in mucilage. So the whole thing was this awful, awful yellow color. What they did is they pried out the staples, they fixed it, sanded it down, applied, you know, good solvent to keep it together, and then put the staples right back in. Because at the end of the day, it's still the best way to do it. And it also looks extremely cool. And that's the thing, right? So as I had mentioned before, a lot of people considered the art of staple repairs more or less dead. After people stopped needing to do it, like a lot of things, people stopped knowing how. But the good news is it's not dead. It is just extremely underappreciated and difficult to document. In rural China, it is still the go-to method for repairing things. Oh. For any communities that cannot afford or if it is just difficult logistically to get replacements for things, there are still itinerant repairmen who use the exact same methods. Some of them still use the bow drills. That's so cool. If you don't know, a bow drill is... You have a drill... It's like how you start a fire in the Boy Scouts. Thank you. I was really hoping you'd be able to help me describe it. Where you wrap the bowstring around a piece of wood and just move the bow back and forth to rotate the stick. Yeah. But like, instead of a stick to start a fire, it's a drill. It's a very nice sharp drill that they very skillfully manipulate to repair pieces. Extremely cool. The ability to discover this was like pretty revolutionary for the three people who are invested <laughs> in <the> staple repair. <laughs> For us, it was very exciting. It was super exciting. For us personally, very exciting. Speaking of people who were excited by this, I got to give a lot of credit to Andrew Bozeman. He is generally considered the king of documenting antique repair. He has a blog called Past Imperfect, The Art of Inventive Repair. And he is pretty much how we know that this still exists. Good on ya. He went through a lot, a lot, a lot of research and eventually found his way to documentaries that were filmed in areas of China that had these things sort of happening in the background <laughs> and eventually used academic articles to bolster his understanding of what they were doing and how it worked. Which is why a lot of people do assume that this might have been happening in China for as long as there have been potteries to fix. I mean, probably. So there are small communities of people who have taken up the, the flag of staple repair themselves. Spurred on largely by Andrew Bozeman. 
uh, because his vlog, by the way, is an absolute delight of his acquisitions and his insights into how they were repaired and why. He actually gets really into how breakages might have occurred. Oh. Yeah, not for any, like, practical reason, but just because he finds that enchanting to think about. Yeah. And another really cool thing that I found out, because I don't, I don't know a lot of repairmen in... I know, actually, probably more than the average human being. I mean, when it comes to antiques and the antiques connections you have in the industry, I think it is fair to say you do know more of these people than the average non-antiques person, yes. <laughs> True. You certainly know more upholsterers than anyone I know, and more sewing machine repair people than <laughs> anyone I know. Someone asked me for upholstery recommendations that I got so excited. But usually the people that I know just kind of work with what I'm going to call modern breakages, which is, you know, their kid dropped it and they need it fixed. I actually found out that a lot of people who deal with even different kinds of repairs will not and will heavily suggest not fixing a staple repaired piece. Because it's already perfect. Exactly. It's a really important part of that item's history. And largely thanks to the work of people like Lakeside Pottery and Andrew Baseman, there is a growing collector's market for staple repaired items. I was going to say, like, I feel like if you're looking just at the market value of a piece, if, like, that, sadly, is your understanding of something's value, the staple repair stuff goes for more just because it's, like, such a cool-looking repair technique that almost no one sees these days. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting thing, and it's something I've seen people quibble about ad nauseum, and they probably will for the rest of history, about at what point does damage become detraction from value? And there are a lot of people, and that includes myself, that thinks that old damage and also an old uh, make-a-do repair shouldn't affect the value in any way, shape, or form. Because if an old item is valuable because of its history, then its historic damage is a part of that, right? Yes. It's not that it shouldn't affect the value whatsoever, it's that it shouldn't affect the value negatively. Yes. Do you think it should affect the value positively? Do you think staple repairs should be more expensive? Uh, yeah. Because it's really fucking cool. <laughs> I'm actually with you on that, yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, but this stuff fucking rules. It's cool as shit, and I wish there were more of it. <laughs> it's almost like bittersweet for me in a way, because on the one hand, I'm excited about the ranks of people who are now understanding the beauty of repaired objects. On the other hand, all the stuff you want to collect is now more expensive. Yeah, it used to be that I could get this stuff for a song, because everyone was like, ugh, broken, don't want it, and I can't do that anymore. Oh no! I actually, the last time I bought a repaired piece, I paid $20 for it, and that was shocking to me. Although, to be fair, unrepaired, it probably would have cost me something around 100 And if I were to resell it, I'd probably put it back up at about that, because, again, the quality of its repairs are so fascinating. That's one of those ones where it's really hard to put a solid valuation on this kind of thing, because like a lot of niche collectibles, it has to find the right customer. Again, that can be easier because I think more and more people are understanding what makes these so important historically and so cool visually. But on the other hand, like, I wouldn't be surprised if you got some pushback from someone if you were selling a repaired piece that way. So I think you have to walk into it with an open mind. I'm reminded of the people in the furniture department of our old antique store who would come in and say, well, it's got scuffs here, scratches here, bump there. Like, I don't, I don't know. Can you knock like a couple hundred dollars off the price? And I'm like, well... If you hate the way it looks that much, I don't think you actually want it. <laughs> so let's go find you a better repaired piece that you can pay full price for. Yeah, I don't know what it is with those people. Okay, does that work on people who are better at customer service than I am? Not necessarily. Because, like, is that a pro strat that I'm just unaware of? 
it's very case to case. I always kind of go back to how new is this damage. If it got damaged on the way in, like fall, fell off a truck and broke a spindle, I would consider them correct and lower the price. If it's clearly wear and tear from being a 200-year-old object, they can go take a long walk off a short pier. And we have plenty of those about. We're a port city. As I was saying, it just occurred to me that other people probably don't use that <laughs> turn of phrase. That's the thing. I grew up landlocked. We still heard that fairly often. Oh, that's strange. I would have expected you guys not to know what piers were. We know what piers are. <laughs> Sorry. It's very mean. We have lakes. We have rivers. We have a reservoir. We understand water as a concept. It's just that it's not its not really so much of an F you to tell someone to take a long walk up short pier into, you know, a pond rather than the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> well, yeah, it's punchier here on the coast. It's much punchier because they can go outside and do it and you can watch. The antique shop is conveniently situated so I can go watch them take that long walk up a short pier. <laughs> nice. Can you imagine I wasn't good at customer service? I cannot even begin to imagine. <laughs> If I may continue my tangent. Feel free. Part of the art of haggling is being able to do like a cold reading of the person you're haggling with, yeah? Oh yeah, 100%. And if someone was so like invested in the art of haggling that they were trying to point out all the damage on this antique piece to me, would they not also be able to cold read me as the kind of person who doesn't care? I don't feel like I hide it very well. No. Most people who think they're good hagglers are not and fail to recognize a salesperson as someone other than desperate to make a sale. Ah. <laughs> Especially in a, an industry where we do all tend to be a little, a little too extremely emotional about the things that we are safeguarding and selling to you. They don't really account for that. And they don't consider it until someone like Donald would have snapped at them, <laughs> for example. <laughs> because a lot of people's like idea of haggling comes from, let's just say it, car lots. Oh, where you can get away with that kind of nonsense because everyone knows that it's worthless except for its utility. Yeah, exactly. And other like salespeople where it's very much the case where you have all the power in this exchange and they do not. Oh. Not necessarily the case at antiques. You <laughs> you at no point know how unhinged someone is regarding their emotional investment into a piece and or if they are independently wealthy and doing this out of love, at which point they do not need your sale. Which is a lot of them, frankly. Which is really quite a lot of antiques dealers. They're either independently wealthy and doing this for fun and or as a convenient tax write-off, or they're like us and they frankly don't give a fuck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're like, like, you and me and the other antiques freaks who are like, you know what? Go ahead. Go ahead and walk away. It will change nothing about my day. <laughs> it will actually improve matters for me significantly if you just turn around and leave. I will be much happier knowing you do not own this piece. Good day. Yeah. <laughs> This tangent's a really good reminder that if you want to be a good haggler in antiques, you're only going to get anywhere with that kind of attitude if you know what you're talking about regarding the antiques. And even if you do know what you're talking about regarding the antiques, you might be up against someone who doesn't know and doesn't care. <laughs> that's also true. And I think that's a good attitude to have at any point in your life. Knowing when to back off when it's pretty clear that the other person does not give a shit how you feel about this. <laughs> I don't get commission, buddy. You can go walk. I was really interested in the rise of staple repair as like a popular topic, hot topic, if you will, and like a desirable collectible, given that um, it's obviously not the only kind of make-do repair. And quite frankly, there are as many repairs to broken ceramics as can be conceived of. 
One thing that comes to mind is Kintsugi, which might someday actually just get its own, like, dedicated recording. Hell yeah. Kintsugi, or Kintsukuroi, if you are not familiar with it, is a Japanese art of repairing items with gold lacquer. And it looks dope as hell. It looks incredible. It is an interesting reminder of the history of a piece and a dedication of the love of the piece that kept it in circulation even after breakage. Especially with Kintsugi, sometimes extreme breakage. But the thing about Kintsugi is that it's obviously a very intentional method of repair because gold is expensive and traditional Kintsugi involves actual gold. So obviously, if you were going to be undertaking repair of something with gold, you were doing it with the intent of beautifying the piece. It's its own art form on purpose, as opposed to staple repair, which is an art form through necessity. And it's kind of the same with other, um, what I call extremely whimsical repairs. Uh, a lot of what you see with what would have been expensive, like status symbol teapots, if their spouts or lids break, you will have them actually fixed with silver. You'll get a silversmith to replace the spout with like solid silver drilled in. Oh, that rules. Yeah, it looks incredible. And I'm guessing those have always been appreciated just because they're done with fine materials. Because obviously, if you slapped sterling silver onto a beautiful teapot, you are going to be twice as excited about having it, right? Obvi. But I'm glad that the humble staple repair is getting its day. I hope that by talking about this, I can help you understand what makes a staple repair amazing. Cool as heck. Andrew Baseman actually has a quote I wanted to share with you because I found it extremely charming and summed up my feelings on the matter. Until recently, dealers would discard broken or repaired pieces, never degrading the rest of their merchandise with anything less than perfect. I felt like I was giving these deserving survivors a new lease on life by taking them home and appreciating them for their unique beauty. I like to think that the original owner, some of them hundreds of years ago, repaired their cherished damaged goods and continued to use and display them, warts and all. Yeah. And that is exactly how I feel. One of my favorite pieces in his collection was a terrine that is made of like mismatched staple repaired parts. So it's like three separate pieces from different sets. Oh, that's so cool. They were obviously culled from other sets. Like, as the broken pieces did not go with the perfect ones. Yeah. <laughs> and they just, they work together, they fit, and they look amazing. I love it. And every single piece of them is staple repaired. I have given thought to attempting a staple repair myself, to be honest. I mean, it sounds like it would be a lot of fun to try. The entry level of materials is pretty low. Like, you need wire and a drill, like... And some broken pottery. There's there's plenty of that about, turns out. Yeah. At the risk of being crass, I think it would be really funny for you to, like, do a staple repair of, like, a broken Starbucks mug. <laughs> okay, all right. Or, like, a Dunkin' Donuts or, like, if Honeydew makes mugs. Oh, my God. That I'm just gonna, oh, I'm gonna get, like, a world's best boss mug. Yes, one of those. From, like, Savers that has, like, a big crack in it. If we could just miss the point <laughs> as far as possible, I feel like it will be really funny. All right, I'm gonna have a whole series where, yeah, I, rep I repair a, a Starbucks mug with, like, actual gold. <laughs> No, no, no. The point of this is to start off the staple repair with something cheap. Oh, you, you, that's going to be, I'm going to work my way up to that. I'm going to staple repair a lot of dumb garbage. Oh, okay. So that's going to be like the crown jewel of the collection in the gallery opening. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a real, like, actually, you know what? It's going to be a busted porcelain clown. Yes. <laughs> that's how my life has been going. It's becoming increasingly infiltrated by clowns. More on those in a bit. <laughs> One really fun fact, although this is really hard to come by and is only slowly gaining in traction in terms of like information you can get about staple repairs, is that eventually you can get a feel for the size, weight, and like appearance of the staples, helping you figure out where it came from. 
this is big surprise, courtesy Andrew Baseman, found that three-quarter large metal staples, three-quarter inch metal staples, were most commonly used in France and Italy. Oh. And he determined this by looking through pieces of French faience and Italian faience and noticing that they all had three-quarter inch metal staples of a similar width. So there's a lot we can learn about this. And uh, I don't know, I think we could all be citizen scientists about this and kind of do our own research based on what we have. Yeah. And send it to Andrew Baseman because he seems excited to talk about this kind of thing all the time. I know I am. You have to go to Past Imperfect. It is the best blog of all time. Hell yes. So that's that on staple repair. Now pardon me while I take a hammer to this number one cousin mug. (laughs) Do you really have one of those? I don't, but I might have to find one at (laughs) a local thrift store. This, okay, so this project would be a great excuse to buy all of the mugs I restrain myself from buying at the thrift store. There, there it is. This is it. This is the excuse you need. I actually found out that stable repairs are the only way to fix certain things. Like, if you need to repair a handle on a mug, for example, it has to be a staple repair. Otherwise, like, there's no glue that's going to restore structural integrity to a weight-bearing piece. Oh. So, like, handles... Handles, handles, and handles. Like, top handles, mug handles lid handles, and uh, very famously, the fingers on porcelain dolls. Oh. To be appropriately repaired, have to have channels drilled in the fingers and reinforced with staples, or they'll just break off again. I never thought of it. Yeah, because there's other, it's the only meaningful way to restore its ability to bear weight. Interesting. So there are ways we can incorporate staple repairs into practical use all the time. And it's a great way to fix that world's best cousin mug you're about to own. <laughs> And I don't know if your cousins listen to this podcast, but I bet you're about to get a lot of those mugs for Christmas. (laughs) I am reminded of a birthday card you gave me once that said number one grandpa. (laughs) My greatest sin is that I cannot stop giving people cards that are inappropriate to the holidays. They're my favorites. I love them. I gave my dad a birthday card that was a My Little Pony Christmas card where I just took a Sharpie and blacked out the references to Christmas and wrote in birthday. <laughs> he was befuddled. I feel like he should be used to that from you by now. <laughs> you think my whole family was, but they still find it in them to be surprised every time. <laughs> Sources today include lakesidepottery.com, uh, their page on pottery tips, absolutely very fascinating they actually have a variety of repair lessons if repairing pottery is something you want to get into blog.andrewbaseman.com which is the url for past imperfect again cannot recommend enough he has an extremely detailed database of all of these finds and what information he has on them and it's enchanting alfiesantiques.blogspot.com article on staple china and nationaltrust.org.uk their article saving the family china if you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook group Antiques Freaks Friends or tag us on Tumblr antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you liked everything that we said here today or didn't, feel free to scroll on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review that either says, I liked everything you said today or I didn't like anything you said today or something in between. Every single time you leave us a review, it gives us a load of help in getting our voices into a variety of ears. We received a delightful review recently from Tazbart, five stars, titled Keyses. <laughs> and the body text says, mwah, 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 y'all are the best. So thank you, Tazbart. You are also the best. Mwah, mwah, mwah. I love that. 
<laughs> Taz Bart. If you would like to purchase t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them or a wide variety of vintage goods, you can check out our Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash antiquesfreaks. Speaking of porcelain clowns. I have more coming. It doesn't seem likely, but it's likely. This, the, the porcelain clowns, they go marching in. Uh, I have sold one already, so you got to move fast if you want to get on this clown action. If you don't want clowns, I do have uh, quite a few books available as well and some other odds and ends. Including The Train Boy by Horatio Alger Jr. Sort of an uncommon copy before it was called The Ohio Train Boy. <laughs> what a title. It is a hoot and a holler. Actually, um, I am interested if you want to hit up our Facebook group at Antiques Freaks Friends and let me know how grotesque you are willing to accept clowns because I have had the opportunity to purchase more clowns but I found their appearance to be disgusting <laughs> um, and I do not know if that would actually impact people's desire to own them or not. I'm curious to hear from people who are interested in owning horrifying clowns. Maybe picture examples of how ugly is too ugly for a clown. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or our special bonus episode presentation of the Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our current patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye. <laughs>